I don't know about y'all, but if they had a Pandora station, if this band had a Pandora station, I'd never turn it. It's like, I, I don't even like listening to Christian music because it's bad elevator music. Like, have y'all ever listened to Christian music on the radio? It's made for soccer moms, and I've looked around, none of y'all look like soccer moms. And I definitely don't. In fact, today I'm rocking the Chia Pet with Mange look. But there's nothing like coming out to talk about the monsters of life and as you're trying to focus and get really spiritual on what you're thinking about, somebody walks by and says, hey, don't suck. Only to find out that yesterday Gary walked up to my wife and says, hey, his message isn't going to suck tomorrow, is it? Which then starts making you wonder, which one sucked that I did before? Which... So anyway, here we are this morning. We're going to talk about the monsters of life. You know, those things that keep us from living the life that we're intended to live. Now, I know Gary's much more creative than I am. He talked about, he talked about vampires, he talked about werewolves, and he talked about zombies. But today, I want to talk about a monster All of those others are monsters outside of us. Today, I want to talk about the monster that we create. I want to talk about dealing with Frankenstein, you know, the monster we create. Now, I don't know if I'm the only one in this boat or not, but if I am, just bear with me and listen along for a little bit. I have had people who come to me and say things, and I take the things that they say, in my, and, and they, they throw things at me, and I let those things become pieces of, around which I build my life. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe you've heard something like this, something to the extent of, you screwed up, you'll never be what you used to be or what you should have been, or you screwed up, and so now you're in this vain or you screwed up and now you're going to be known by your screw up. Am I the only, am I alone in this? And what happens is we take all of those things that people say to us, maybe it's something like you'll never be more than an addict or maybe it's something like you are this and it's a negative connotation. Maybe it's you're divorced or maybe it's you're a failure or maybe it's you're never going to be able to control your weight or maybe it's, I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about. And we take all of those things and they begin to be how the, the, the lens through which we view life. Maybe... It's not just negative things. You know, sometimes we like to focus on the negative things that people tell us, and that's what creates the monster. But sometimes people tell us the positive things, and that is what creates the monster. Something along these lines. You can be anything you want to be. Not going to go into a science lesson, but there are X chromosomes and there are Y chromosomes. I'm going to leave it at that. Y'all, y'all tracking with, with a brother here? You can be anything. And so we, we have people who sometimes tell us positive things. And, and this in our world of participation trophies, we tell children that everyone is a champion. Do we not? Well, people, there are some people who are winners and losers. If you don't believe me, ask the Falcons. I'm... I know some of you are Atlanta fans. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm just being real. They lost. They, they blew the biggest Super Bowl lead in the history of the Super Bowl. They lost. They don't have the trophy. They're, they're like Will Smith in that episode where his dad goes away and he looks at Uncle Phil and says, why doesn't my dad want me? The Super Bowl trophy's like, why don't they want me? 
But sometimes it's positive things that create the monster. You know what I mean? We tell kids something like, oh, you're so smart, you can do anything. And we never let them experience failure. And so it becomes a monster. They think that they're entitled to everything. And then they grow up to be adults who think they're entitled to whatever they want. And they have this monster that is created within them. They're Frankenstein. And what happens is life hits them in the face and they don't know how to deal with it. Anybody else ever been there? So regardless of whether it's a positive that we hear all the time and that becomes the lens through which we view our life or it's a negative that we hear all the time and those become the lenses through which we view our life, it, it creates in us a monster and we don't see things as they really are. We see them through this, this clouded glasses and we become Frankenstein. Maybe a coach told you you were a great athlete. Maybe a coach told you you would never amount to anything and so you constantly view yourself and so you take what this person says and what that person says and it just kind of becomes this conglomerate, if you will, of how you view your life. Well, today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where the person in the story we're going to look at was, was kind of living in this life. She had created her own Frankenstein, and we're going to see how she deals with that and how she overcomes that. And, and, and i got to tell you, we're going to read a lot of Scripture today. It's a long passage because it's, it's a narrative, and, and I'd love to tell you that there's some spiritual reason that we're going to read the entire passage, but... Really, it's just because I don't have as much hot air as Gary, and I wouldn't talk as long as him. And he's always told me, don't you, give him, don't you let him out of here in 20 minutes, I'll kill you. Not really. There really is a lot in here, so we're going to look at all of it real quick. So in John chapter 4, um, we're going to begin reading in verse 1, read about a lot. Um, and then we'll kind of walk through it together. But man, this is, you know, if I were to ask you what is Gary's favorite story, most of you would know immediately his favorite Bible story is what? Prodigal son, Luke 15. So John chapter 4 is probably one of mine. Gary's a better preacher than I am because he keeps notes of when he preaches certain things. I don't, but I'm pretty sure I've preached this text here before. And so we all pick on Gary about having four sermons. He likes to say it's six, but it's four. Um, I don't even have that many, okay? So look in John 4 with me, beginning in verse 1. God's word says, this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It's kind of like Baptist and Methodist at the restaurant. Jesus answered to her, I'm joking. Somebody will hear that later and get frustrated. I, I, the, <laughs> Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. We're going to stop right there for just a second. We're going to keep going. 
That here, to draw water, the emphasis is on here, so that I don't have to keep coming here. We're going to talk about that in a minute. It's important. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus said, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. I've got to give you the background of what's happened here. It's important. Have you ever noticed in the narrative, I love the narrative passages of Scripture because although there's a lot there, everything that's there is important. For example, if you notice, it said Jesus had to go through Samaria. Did it not say that back early in the text? Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, here's the deal. Most of the time, the Jews, although it was shorter to get to Galilee to go through Samaria, the Jews refused to go through there because they had such hatred for the Samaritans. In fact, they would take the longer route and go around. to. They would rather deal with Gentiles than with Samaritans who they considered to be less than human, if you will. They considered them to be extremely unclean. They considered them to be uh, uh, the lowest of the low, if you will. And so Jesus, when the text says that he had to go through Samaria, what, what it's saying is that there was a divine agenda. There was a reason that he went through Samaria because most Jews went avoided it like the plague. And then when you keep reading and it says that he sat down by Jacob's well and it was about noon. Now, what happens as the day goes on, what happens to the temperature? It gets warmer, does it not? What happens to the water in the whale, the temperature of the water in the whale? It gets warmer, does it not? How do we like our water to taste? We like it to be a little bit cool or like cold. Most of us, don't we? Some of us don't like cold water, but how many of us really want to take a big drink of a hot water bottle. Anybody? I, it's not what we want it to be cool. And so the fact that she's coming there at noon is important. And here's why it's important. This woman, as you continue reading and hearing her story, we find out that she's been married five times and now she's living with a man who is not her husband. Most of us are smart enough to understand that we would call this lady an immoral lady. We would call her someone who is I'm not shaming when I say this, but I'm just going to be real. That We'd call her a slut. Would we not? Don't get mad at me. Y'all know Gary says worse than that from up here anyway. We would call her a lot of different names. And so here's this woman 
coming to the well while Jesus is sitting there, and Jesus does the unthinkable. He would have turned all of the legalists on their heads. He looks at her, and he talks to her. In fact, she's even taken aback by it. Sir, how is it that you, being a Jew, would talk to me, a Samaritan? Not just a Samaritan, but a woman. See, here's the thing. Samaritans were considered to be unclean. This woman is also immoral. This woman is a Samaritan. She's one that the Jews have nothing to do with. I mean, everything points to the fact that Jesus shouldn't have even been there and that he certainly shouldn't have been talking to her. But then as you begin to watch their dialogue and see their conversation, you begin to notice that every time Jesus talks to her, she talks back to Jesus, and you can almost tell that all of the objections that she raises are the very defense mechanisms that she is using to protect herself from being hurt. Can I say something? Have you ever noticed that when we create the monsters of our life, you know, those things that the lenses through which we view everything else, our Frankenstein. Have you ever noticed that what we're really doing is creating a defense mechanism to protect ourselves from being hurt? What we do is we, we view ourselves as a failure because if I expect failure from myself, everyone else already does. So if I expect failure and I fail, I don't get hurt anymore because that's what I thought was going to happen anyway. Or if we say, well, I can't lose weight. I've been fat all of my life, and so I'm always going to be fat. That's the defense mechanism for why we're not successful, and so it doesn't hurt as much. Can I tell you this, and this is just free? Living life through the false pretenses of a Frankenstein or of a false reality in an attempt to avoid pain will do nothing but cause us more pain more heartache, and cause us to miss out on the life that God has designed for us to live. It may hurt to sit down and look in the mirror and get real. It may hurt for a little bit to do that, but I promise you that's the first step you have to take if you're ever going to experience the life God designed for you. You've got to be willing to sit down, look things head on, and have the hard conversations with yourself. With yourself. Most often... Rather than having a hard conversation with ourselves, we live in a society that has taught us it's okay to place the blame somewhere else. It's okay to not be responsible for my own life. Can I ask you a question at the end of the day? Who, who is going to go to bed in your head? You are, right? It's a whole lot. Let me back up. You will never live the life God designed you to live until you sit down and have that conversation with yourself. So how do we have that conversation? How do we get to the point where we can overcome our Frankenstein? How do we get to the point where we can overcome all of those things that cause us to view life and to miss out on the life we were created to live? How do we have that conversation? Well, there's a few things in this text that I want us to look at We'll go through them as quickly as possible, but not too quickly, so I get to come back. The first one is this. You've got to seize the interruptions of life for the blessings they can possess. This woman could have very easily, when she saw Jesus, she, and he said, would you give me a drink? He could, he, she could have very easily said, no, I don't want anything to do with you, turned and walked away, you don't know who I am. All of the, You don't know what I've done. Y'all ever heard things like this? People say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. Jesus is saying by his willingness to have a conversation, get this, Jesus is saying, 
I don't care. Jesus is saying, I don't care. Okay, you're a a Samaritan. You're a woman. By the way, in these days, a husband would not even talk to his wife in public. In fact, he would have made the legalists stand on their head when they say things to other female leaders like, go home. He would have turned them on their head by sitting down and having a conversation with this woman by showing her that she was worthy of his time, his love, his affection, and he was, she was worthy of hearing truth. He had to turn the legalists on their head. He might have even turned some of our modern-day preachers who write a lot of books and get on TV a lot and who people like to quote. He might have even turned them on their head because he didn't tell her to go home. In fact, he had a conversation with her. Can I tell you, Jesus says in this text, I don't care. And this woman, instead of turning and running away, she seizes this opportunity. Maybe, now, there's one school of thought that thinks that perhaps she came at noon because who, who, what would have been around a well at noon? The women would have already come early in the morning to have gotten their water for the day. The only thing that would have been around the well at noon was men watering their livestock. Now, why would a woman come around a well with a bunch of men? Ain't nothing new under the sun, guys, right? So there's a thought that this woman might have been a prostitute, but that's really not the the, the indication of the text. In fact, the text seems to indicate that she came at noon to avoid all of the women who would have been there in the morning, to avoid the scoffing looks, to avoid the, well, kind of the same reason that most servers don't want to work on Sundays. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Why do servers not like working on Sundays at restaurants? Because we tip terribly and we act like jerks. And if you don't believe me, listen, this is a true story. I like to go to restaurants on Sundays at lunch, and I really like to be dressed like I either just got out of the gym or like I just got through working because I can spot every pastor in a restaurant. Typically, they're the ones that hand a tract out instead of a tip, or they're the ones who whine because their food was, took too long to get, take, to get brought out, or they're the ones who talked to the server about, why don't you come to church with us next Sunday? Dude, she's trying to make a living, or he's trying to make a living to provide for their family. Why don't you just love them where they are? Instead of that million-dollar tract, won't you give them a halfway decent tip? Well, I'll give them a tip if they deserve it. Well, they won't spit in your food if you'll quit being an idiot. That's the way I feel about it. But this woman chose to sit there and have a conversation. She chose to seize the opportunity. Most of us, how do we look? Most of us see see interruptions of life as things that mess us up and get in our way from doing what we want to do, don't we? I mean, if we have an interruption in our life, and if you don't believe me, watch traffic on 75 or 285. We think that interruptions are there to mess us up, but sometimes 
interruptions come in our life to bring us a blessing, to cause us to stop for a minute, this woman, instead of going to the well, looking for every reason to avoid human interaction, instead goes there and has the very thing that she's looking to avoid, and that is human interaction. And what she was probably expecting was Jesus to look down upon her, was someone to talk bad to her, or to make an unwanted advance on her. Y'all know kind of like those pictures y'all get on social media, ladies? Instead, she saw a blessing in someone that could talk to her and show her that she is worthy. If you don't get anything else from what I'm going to say the rest of this message, I want you to get this. I don't care what you've done because Jesus doesn't care what you've done. He says, you are worthy of his love. You are worthy of his time. You are worthy of a relationship with him. You are worthy. Seize the interruptions of life. How do we do that? How do I seize the interruptions? I'm going to trip and fall. How do I seize the interruptions? We seize the, that would have been an interruption. We seize the interruptions. Listen to me. We seize the interruptions by when we see them, We stop, and instead of getting upset, let's embrace it. Just embrace it. Say, what's what's the Lord trying to teach me here? Now, most of us, if we'll be honest for a minute, we don't want to deal with that Frankenstein because when we, what I said earlier, when we have to stop and seize seize it and embrace that moment of interruption, it means we may have to give up a little bit of control. We may have to give up a little bit of, anybody else a control freak or is it just me? I don't ride with anybody else. I drive because I'm in control. Anybody else like that? What are we really in control of? Just us, right? I'm only in control. I can't control what the car beside me does, the car behind me, in front of me, right? I'm just in control of myself. And so we got to seize that moment of an interruption. Now, look at what, look at what happens. They begin to have this conversation And she's asking all of these questions. Every time Jesus talks to her, she has a rebuttal. Every time Jesus says something to her, she talks back. Y'all ever have kids that do that? How many of you just want to smack the snot out of the kids when they talk back? Let's just be real for a minute, right? Be like, slap them into next week. And then they want to ask a question about how that works. Time travel is not possible. It's about to be. Try me. But listen. This interruption, she goes to the well to avoid human interaction. She goes to the well to get water. She goes to the well to hopefully miss out on what she's probably become accustomed to at the well, of being looked down on, of being castigated from society. She has an interruption. And everything that's going to happen after this, it's going to teach her how to deal with, and how to view life. Everything that's about to happen is all because she was willing to embrace that interruption. By the way, sometimes we avoid the human interaction because we expect it to be one way, and when it's something completely different than what we expect, we don't know how to react. Anybody been there? Two years ago, I walked through those doors back there not knowing what to expect, and when I met Gary and he said, I told him my story and he said, I don't care. 
it took it caught me off guard. I didn't know how to react. Now, and I've told this before. Like I know now what he meant was I don't care. Not I don't care about you. We care about you. We don't care about your junk. Like your junk is not who you are. It's not what defines you. And what Jesus is telling her in this moment of this interruption of her life is that her junk is not what defines her. That what defines her is the fact that she is a human being. And listen, and she is an image bearer of God because further in the text, Jesus says this. Jesus talks about the Father seeks true worshipers. Now, I I know this is a stretch, but how, how can someone be a father, right? Like the, the, he's, he's referring to God as the father, meaning that we bear his last name or we bear his image. In other words, there's, there's value there because if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, what we find is that when God created everything, he spoke the world into existence. He spoke the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, all of those things. But when it came to humanity, he took his hands and he formed humanity out of the dust of the ground. And then he didn't just say, hey, live. Instead, the Bible tells us that he breathed the the breath of life into mankind and we were created in his image we bear the image we have a we are a spiritual being we bear the image of the god of the universe and whenever we're told that we're not worthy or that we are nothing and we begin to view ourselves that way we give other people control over our lives so that they dictate how we view ourselves jesus stands right here and says no 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 you are worthy because you're created in the image of the father You have value simply because of your humanity. You have value simply because God breathed life into you. So seize that moment, that interruption to to take the pause and say, okay, what's God trying to teach me in this moment? But not only do we have to seize the interruptions of life for the blessings they can possess. See, it's one thing to seize the moment. It's another thing to sit down and have a conversation with Jesus. This is the hard one for, for most of us. This is the hard one for most of us. See, the thing I love about coming to Action Church is when I come into Action Church, and I want y'all to hear where I'm going with this, and don't throw anything at me because I can't see it coming and duck. I come into Action Church, and on a day like today, when it's not raining, there's motorcycles out here, there's a group of people out there smoking cigarettes, and there's a group of people out, just different groups of people everywhere, and they're talking about, and they're talking about what's going on in life, and they're being real with it. In fact, I've heard people say, here at Action Church, something to the effect of, oh man, I had way too much to drink yesterday. Y'all are laughing because it's either true of you or you've heard those same conversations or both, right? But what I'm saying is when we come in here, we, I love it because we drop the pretenses. We, there's no pretentiousness. We just come in and we're real. We tell it like it is. We're not, listen to what I'm telling you. There's a difference between gloating in our sin and bragging about our sin and just shooting straight and being honest with somebody. The thing about Action Church that sets us apart from everywhere else that I've ever been a part of is we come in and we're real and we're raw and we just let it all out there and we tell it like it is, right? There are churches all over this area this morning where people are gonna walk into church and on the way to church, the husband and the wife came as close to a divorce as they've ever come. They cussed their children out. They did everything they could do. They told them, I'm going to beat you within an inch of your life if you act up in this church house one more time. They put on all their best clothes. They go to church. They walk in the door. They've, they've about killed each other on the way to church, and it's only a five-minute drive. They get to the church. They get to the door. Somebody greets them. They say, how you doing? Oh, brother so-and-so, I'm doing well. I'm blessed and highly favored. You nearly killed your wife. 
You threaten to kill your kid? And you know what happens. There's one little child that says, but daddy, you call mama. And they grab him. Y'all know what I'm talking about. They grab him by the back of the arm. You know what I'm talking about? Can I be real with you for a minute and just say it this way? Listen, when I say sit down and have a conversation with Jesus, I'm not talking about putting your Sunday best on and going to church and putting all of the junk over you, acting like everything's okay. I'm talking about sit down at the well and have a conversation with Jesus and say, man, I'm screwed up and I don't know what's going on, but let's just get real and have a face-to-face, heart-to-heart with Jesus when we sit down and we pull back the curtain and let him see, see all the way in us. Because, by the way, if you can't tell from this text, he knows anyway. He knows anyway. Have an honest conversation. Listen, Jesus would say something to her and she would reply and, and have a rebuttal. And, and, and here's the thing, by the way, do you, and I said this in, in the introduction, but we do that. She's got all of these rebuttals because she's afraid to be vulnerable with Jesus. Because when you're vulnerable, you open yourself up to pain. And a woman that's been married five times, been castigated by society, been called an outcast because of her race, because of her gender, because of everything else that's gone on in her life, she's an outcast and she's been put aside. Now, here's this guy who she's afraid to be vulnerable with because she doesn't know if he's going to hurt her. And so every time he says something, she has a rebuttal. But what does Jesus do to those rebuttals? Come on, listen. Jesus is big enough for every one of your questions. Jesus is big enough for every one of your rebuttals. You know, somebody once told us, and when I was in Sunday school, you know, the Sunday school answers, I, I call them the God, Jesus, and the Bible answers. You know, you're not supposed to be mad at God. God's God. He's good. He knows everything. He's blood. Y'all know the regurgitated Sunday school answer. Can I tell you, God's big enough to handle my anger. God's big enough to handle your anger. God's big enough to handle your fears. God's big enough to handle whatever it is you're dealing with. If you don't believe me, read the book of Psalms. Man, the book of Psalms, we see the psalmist in, in, in the book of Psalms. The psalmist continually cries out and gives God his anger, gives God his fear, gives God his emotion. God is big enough to handle it. By the way, he'd much rather you turn to that than the needle. He'd much rather you turn to him than the bottle. He'd much rather turn, you turn to him than, and this is the one that's going to take all the, ba- the former Baptist off. He'd much rather turn to, turn, you turn to him than the buffet. Y'all ever noticed that there are various denominations out there that are teetotalers on alcohol, but they will kill a golden corral? I'm just saying. Is gluttony not also mentioned with drunkenness? Oh, you're stepping on my toe now, preacher. They'll also talk about lust, but don't you dare look at their history. My point is this, maybe we ought not to be, and this is free, maybe we ought not to be harping so much on the specific sins, and maybe we just ought to be sitting down with Jesus, having a one-on-one conversation, and letting him in. Maybe if we'll just stop worrying about everybody else's sin, and what they're doing, and what she's doing, or he's doing, or they're doing, maybe if we'll just sit down with Jesus and let him look in us, he'll find, we'll find that he's got plenty to work on in us. So how do we overcome the monster? How do we overcome this Frankenstein? we got to sit down and have a conversation with Jesus. And when I say conversation, we got to get honest. I love this. When they're having the conversation, she says, okay, you Jews say Jerusalem is a place to worship, and our ancestors say on this mount. Get this, Jesus is telling her about living water. Remember I told you a while ago, if you knew who it was that asked of you, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water that you would never thirst again. 
And she said, sir, give me this water so I don't have to come here to draw water again. The emphasis in there is on the word here. She didn't want to have to go back to that place. Get this. She didn't want to have to go back to that place because that place for her wasn't a place of social gathering. That place for her wasn't a place that was a joyous place. It wasn't a place where she wanted and longed to go. It wasn't a place where she felt love and acceptance. It was a place where everything that was wrong in her life, she allowed other people to put their images on her, and they became, that became her Frankenstein. That place meant something. For some of us, that listen, for some of us who have been hurt and burned by the church in the past, that's what an established church looks like for us. Is That, that becomes that place for us that we can't go because we know how we're going to be viewed there. By the way, y'all ever noticed that it's the enemy who calls us by our sin? Jesus says the true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. That the spirit within us will agree with the Holy Spirit of who he is. But you ever noticed who it is the most? Those of us who have a past that's not the most clean, Y'all ever noticed who it is that likes to remind us of our past? It's not a dude with pitchforks and horns coming out of his head. Most often, it's the Pharisees of our day who fill the pews in other churches who would remind us of our past. But Jesus doesn't remind this woman of her past. She doesn't talk, he doesn't talk about the five husbands and the one she's living with now as a reminder of her past. He does it to say, I already know and I already value you. I already know and I already value you. She was a woman. She was a Samaritan. She was immoral. She was unclean. She was despised. She was rejected by society. She was bound in her chains. She seizes the interruption. She has an honest conversation with Jesus. And in just a moment, we're going to see something else. But after those two things, she goes from being all of those things to someone who's worthy, someone who's loved, someone who's an image bearer, someone who's forgiven, someone who is more than the sum of her past, and someone who went from being hopeless to hopeful. She went from someone who was bound, and she met someone who broke every chain. Can I tell you, when we sit down with Jesus, he can break every chain. By the way, I have to tell you, I love, just, this is free too. I love how the Holy Spirit works. So when, just kind of give you, like, peel back the curtain a minute and let you see the, the behind the scenes. So when Gary asked me to preach, Philip always sends me the order of service. Well, I never look at the order of service until Sunday morning because I don't want to know what the music is. The reason I don't want to know what the music is is because I'm that guy, what did I say earlier? I'm a control freak, right? And so if I know what the music is, sometimes I'll try to, like, find a way to, say, make sure that my sermon kind of, y- y- y'all, y'all tracking with me? Okay, so I never, like, I didn't even look today until, like, probably, I don't know, not, it was at least, well, I mean, I was in here, so I heard it, but I didn't even look until I heard them warming up at the worship, at, at the, the set list. And it's just crazy to me to see how the Holy Spirit takes Philip, who doesn't know what I'm preaching, and the reason I know that is because Xander didn't get my notes till sometime last night. So they don't know what I'm preaching, I don't know what they're singing, and it's crazy how it all works together. God's kind of good like that. By the way, if we'll take our hands off and sit down and have a conversation with God, let him peel back the curtain, see what's in our life, it's crazy what he will do in our lives if we'll just let him. 
Why is it that we think we can do better with our life than God can? Y'all ever notice that? We think we can do better than what God can do with our life, don't we? Okay, maybe it's just me then. Sit down and talk with Jesus. See, some of us have been told we're a failure, we're an addict, we're a drunk, we're immoral, we're this, we're that. Jesus knows what we've been told. Jesus knows how we view ourselves, the monster that we've created, our Frankenstein. He knows all that. So when we sit down and we peel back the curtain and let him come in and answer all of our questions, let him come in and speak life into us, when we sit down and have that conversation, it changes things in us. And not only does it change things in us, but when things change in us, things change for us. See, when you know when, when, when you know that you're viewing things as they are and not through this, un, this biased lens or this false reality, when you view things as they are, it changes how you view life. Like you get to live the life that you were meant to live. By the way, I noticed that Jesus doesn't, he really doesn't focus a lot on her sin. He doesn't focus a lot on her immorality. He certainly doesn't focus on her being a woman. He doesn't focus on uh, the fact that she's been been married five times and she's living with somebody. He doesn't focus on that. Instead, he focuses on her being able to live the life that she was created to live. Get this. God doesn't care. He would much rather you live the life you were created to live than be bound by the prison of your past. This woman is as, as far at rock bottom as you could possibly be. She's been married five times. Dude, she's with now. Won't even give him give her his name. Now she's with him. This, that, she's rejected. All of this. She sits down with Jesus. Jesus doesn't talk about any of that. She's at the bottom, and she's not trying to use rock bottom as a trampoline. But at the same time, Jesus says that prison is not your that pit is not your prison. Some of us need to realize that the pit is not our prison. Listen, Jesus doesn't, doesn't, Jesus doesn't identify her by her sin. Instead, Jesus refers to her as woman. And, and we, we think now, in our society, if someone calls a lady woman, that doesn't, like, that doesn't go over real well. In, this, in the text, he's not being disrespectful. He's giving her value by speaking to her. He's not saying, look here, woman. By the way, men... I wouldn't say that to your wives. It will not go well for you at all. Don't ask me how I know. Somebody's going to go up and ask Lindsay later. All right, tell the story. There's really no story. I'm just smarter than that. <clears throat> it's hard to believe sometimes. Seize the interruptions. Sit down and have a conversation. This is where it's fixing to get real good. His disciples come back, and they know the customs. Number one, they're probably shocked that they're in the region of Samaria, uh, the Samaritan region anyway, because they're Jewish people, and they're like, we don't go here. They're shocked. But no one says, what in the world are you doing, Jesus? They've learned their lesson not to question him, right? They've learned not to question Jesus, and no one says, why are you talking to a woman? They're just going to let Jesus do his thing because they've been around for a little bit. This is John 4. It's after John 2. At John 2, they went to a wedding, and at the wedding, they ran out of wine. That sounds like a problem at Action Church. At, at John 2, they ran out of wine. And so Jesus said, okay, I'll take care of this. I got you. He turned the water into wine, and it was the best wine. 
Normally, the custom at that time was to put out the good wine first, and as everybody got drunk, put the PBR and natties out. But the master of ceremony said, whoa, wait a minute. This is the good stuff. I'm not going to call out good stuff because some of y'all will get frustrated and think that I'm either too redneck or too sophisticated if I call out what I think is good stuff. But let's just say it's not Natty Light. Here's the great thing. Somebody's going to hear this on a podcast or they're going to see it on Facebook Live and they're going to say, I can't believe he is talking about beer from the stage. Listen, first century table wine was about the equivalent of our beer. All those teetotalers out there right now are losing their mind. Yes. But get this. The disciples come back. They're talking. They're surprised, but nobody, nobody interrupts. Get this, verse 28. Then, leaving her water jar. Why did she come to the well to get water? She leaves her water jar and she goes back into town to talk to the very people who she was looking to avoid. She goes back to town to talk to the people she wanted nothing to do with. She goes back to town without her water jar. That water jar was her baggage. It represented everything that was wrong. She had to come in the middle of the day. It represented all the junk that had built up in her life that she had allowed to be built up in her life because she was living with these expectations and these uh, images that people had put on her. And so now she leaves the water jar and she goes back into town. Listen, leave your baggage at the well. Leave your baggage at the well. She has sat down. She's had a conversation with Jesus. He's, he's answered her questions, and she leaves her water jar. She goes back to the very people that she wanted nothing to do with, who wanted nothing to do with her. And, she, and, and in all probability, she really went in and, and looked for the elders of the city. And she goes and has a conversation and says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this not be the Messiah? The indication in the original language is that she's, got, she's tentative in her question. She's not proclaiming him as the Messiah. Messiah, she still got questions. But get this, Jesus is okay with us still having questions. He just wants to have that conversation, take our baggage, and let us walk the road with him. See, here's the thing. Most, most of us in church, we've grown up, if you've grown up in church or you've been in church very long, most of us are looking for that, 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 uh, that Saul to Paul conversion, you know, where we get hit with a blinding light from heaven and, and all of a sudden, bam, there's, there's this point of conversion. But in, the re, in reality, most of us have much more of this type of conversion. It's a process more than a point. And so what happens is she goes back into the very people. She left her baggage at the well. She left that water jar there. And she goes back to the people that she wanted nothing to do with and who wanted nothing to do with her. And she said, could, could this not be him? Now, the, the, we're going to read in just a minute, but he comes on and it says that people began to come out and see him. And here's the deal. Maybe they came out to see. At first, you could read that and you could think maybe they came out to see Jesus because if he knows everything she's done, oh, snap, what does he know about me? Right? But get this. John 4.39 says this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This woman who went to Jesus, who went to the well, whose life was in a mess. She was living her life as Frankenstein, going through the motions, taking everybody else's expectations, 
putting him on herself. Her life was in shambles. Her life was falling apart. She went there just to get water, hoping to see no one, hoping to have no conversation, just to get the water and go back to the house because she was not welcome and she was not worthy. This woman meets Jesus. She, she embraces, she seizes the interruption. She sits down and has a conversation. She leaves her baggage at the well. She goes back into the very people she wanted nothing to do with. She begins to tell them, come see a man who told me everything about my life. Could he not be the Messiah? She's still not convinced herself. The indication the text gives. And then, many of the very people, get this, who the Jews would have, many of the very people who would make up the action church crowd, the people the Jews or the religious would have nothing to do with, many of them became believers because of her testimony. Get this, Jesus took this woman whose whose life was in a mess and he turned her mess into his message. He took her mess and he said, I'm not just going to change your life, I'm going to change their lives. He said, listen, your mess is going to become the ministry through which the message will reach these people. Now tell me she's not worthy, she's not loved. Tell me you're not worthy and you're not loved. Jesus says this, I don't care about your Frankenstein. I just want you to live the life I've created you to live. Take hold of those those interruptions. Sit down and have a conversation. Let's get real for a minute. Let's get real for a minute. Then leave your baggage. By the way, had she gone back into town carrying that water jar, nobody would have paid any attention. That's what they were used to seeing. She comes back into town with no water jar. Wait a minute. That's a little odd, isn't it? That's kind of like it's odd when we see someone who actually uses their blinker. Right? She goes back into town without the baggage. Come see a man who told me everything about me. Could he not be the Messiah? Hey, listen, maybe you're here today, and you're kind of in her boat. Your life's a mess. Say, Grady, it's real simple for you to say this, and there's a nice little happy ending and a bow, and you wrapped it all up where her mess became a message and it became a ministry, and that's a cute little cliche, and that's great, but but you don't really know me, and and how do I know that my life is going to become that? And the answer is I, I don't. I don't know that your life will become the message or the ministry through which many people will come to Christ. But what I do know is if you stay on the path that you're on and you refuse to embrace the interruptions of life, and if you refuse to have an honest conversation, and if you refuse to leave your baggage, your life will continue to spiral and you'll miss out on what God wants for you. Here's the thing. We celebrate her ministry, but can I tell you this? God wants to celebrate your freedom as well. We don't just want to celebrate what what was done through her life. We want to celebrate what was done in her life. And what was done in her life was that she left that, without, she left that well without the baggage she came there with. Some of you this morning, you're thinking, okay, well, what does that mean? It means you may need to use where you're sitting as an altar or as a well. And, and in just a moment when I pray and when the band leads in worship, maybe what you need to do is just leave your baggage right there. Quit carrying around the junk. See, here's the thing. 
when, when this woman met Jesus, she was immoral and, and, and unethical and all of those other things that we like to talk about people as being. But when she leaves Jesus, she's just a woman leaving without her water pot. What I'm saying is this. Some of us identify ourselves the way others have identified us, and we need to see ourselves the way Jesus sees us. What I mean is simply this. Now, hear what I'm about to say. If you're an addict, you need to be able to say, to get to, get to the point where you can get freedom, you need to be able to admit that you're an addict. But you need to quit identifying as an addict. You need to realize that Jesus has made you new. If you leave your baggage at the well, quit saying, well, I'm just an addict. No, you're not. You're a person created in the image of God for whom he sent his only son to die on a cross to pay the penalty of your sin to be able to overcome the power of addiction in your life. You're a person for whom Jesus rose from the dead three days later so that you could show that if he could defeat death, hell, and the grave, you can defeat addiction. You can defeat whatever that is, whether it's a needle, whether it's a bottle, whether it's a fork. God can defeat that in your life. So quit identifying yourself by the thing that holds you down and let the one who came to break every chain set you free. Because I promise you this, when you experience freedom like she did and you leave your baggage at the well, your life will become a message. Your mess will be cleaned all up, flipped around, and made into the message. Your life will become that life that God has designed you to live.